Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. The data which they're going to discuss today um, is obviously like the U.S.-China relationship uh, suggests there's some difficulty in uh, cross-border capital flows. Um, and they will talk about that, but I'm not going to steal their thunder and, um, and lay out what the conclusions are. But let me just say that the committee is proud to work with the Rhodium Group to kind of lay out facts which then can allow us to make policy determinations. That today, far too often, um, our policies, both in China and the United States, are not fact and data-based. And this report allows policymakers to make decisions which are data-based. Um, let me turn it over to uh, Dan Rosen, uh, who, in addition to his many other accomplishments, you have his and everyone else's bio. So I'm not going to repeat everything that's in the bio, but does your bio include that you're a director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations? <clears throat> well, the, the, the proper bio does, so I hope that's the one that's in the program. It does. It does. It does. Good. Okay. Is. So let me turn it over to Dan. Let's see. I think I'm going to... John, am I going to start up here? Okay. Very good. So good afternoon and good early evening. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here. And um, let me start by thanking Steve Orleans uh, and the National Committee um, for being uh, such a dedicated and important partner to the Rhodium Group in doing the work that we're going to talk to you about here tonight. Of course, I want to add my thanks to uh, the long list of sponsors um, that Steve mentioned, uh, individuals uh, with uh, all of whom have lifelong commitments to uh, a strong U.S.-China uh, relationship and um, understanding it making the most of it, and also some very important corporations um, that are dedicated to the, the committee's work, uh, to this body of research um, that we're here to talk about um, tonight as well. Um, we couldn't do it with, um, without them. Um, my colleagues, Tilo Hanneman, Cassie Gao, and uh, Adam Lysenko um, are all part, um, together with me, um, of this body of work. Today, we're here to kick off the next three-year cycle of our effort uh, on uh, Two-Way Street, a long-standing committee rhodium group collaboration to illuminate U.S.-China bilateral investment trends. When we started this work uh, in the fall of 2015, this was still sort of a baby topic. Uh, it was still a little hard for it to get full attention next to much bigger matters such as the value of the renminbi against the dollar or the trade balance and things like that. In the years since then, um, we really caught a tiger by the tail, we could say. Um, the, uh, the topic, interest in it, its implications for um, both countries um, has really just boomed. It's an extraordinary experience. It's been an important collaboration, this project. It's been a very successful one from a public policy perspective. When you do public policy economic research like this, you know, if you look at the totality of it that happens in the sort of research and think tank space, most of it necessarily is kind of wonky, kind of dry. You're lucky if you can occasionally 
you know, get a little coverage on C-SPAN or something like that. Um, success is really picking the right issue at the right time and offering up something that really helps people grapple with it. And this is, I think, continues to be an outstanding example of success um, in this kind of collaboration among researchers, um, non-government public policy organizations to help uh, officialdom and business grapple with a topic uh, in a very timely manner. So it's been a successful undertaking. It's also, I think, been a very valuable one to businesses uh, in helping them better understand the forces at work that have been changing the nature of US-China um, investment uh, dynamics between them. And that, of course, has been a harbinger of flows between China and other parts of the advanced economy world um, as well. In this new cycle of the undertaking, we are doing a, many things that you'll be familiar with from our work in the past. And we're doing a few things that are new and very important. First of all, we are expanding our coverage. I won't too, take too much of uh, the thunder away from that, um, which you're going to see in just a second uh, when Tila walks us through the details of what's in this report. Um, but they're very important expansions in the coverage that mirrors an expanding interest and in coverage in what's happening in official regulatory space um, with the United States and other nations too, start, and China itself, starting to look beyond traditional uh, windows of what we talk about when we talk about investments to look at a broader slate of topics. We also, um, in the new iteration, expand the frequency of our work. Whereas the past three years, we've done this just on an annual basis as an annual yearbook. Um, henceforth, we'll be having additional publications during the course of the year and some persistent, uh, we believe persistent, social media work as well to make sure that the data that we're, um, uh, that we're putting together um, is being updated and made available to interested um, folks uh, on a more um, persistent um, basis. Our goal, though, overall remains the same, to provide an objective framework, as Steve noted this in his opening comment, for a critical element of the U.S.-China relationship at a time of grave and growing uncertainty around where things are going. I would nor normally have to tell you that the, the medium term is increasingly uncertain, but we're not even sure what's gonna happen in the next 24 hours um, right now. Um, this is really quite a, a special and uh, timely occasion we get together. Um, to set the scene for what Tilo's gonna do the hard work here tonight, as he always does when we have these um, gatherings on, on this report, let me just offer a few thoughts to kick us off. First of all, this is a picture of the US-China goods trade uh, 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 picture. Um, U.S. exports, U.S. imports um, with China, and the balance there. And I would observe that trade gets all the credit when we talk about the hard stuff in the relationship in the Trump era, right, in the past couple of years. You can see that blip of that red line going down means the U.S. deficit with China is getting larger and larger. So if you were looking at planet Earth from Mars and you were asking yourself, you know, what happens when somebody like Trump takes office, the answer is the U.S. has a bigger deficit with China, not a smaller one. So far, the effect of his presidency has been um, uh, to see uh, a change in that trend line under late Obama of the deficit going down has turned into an increase in deficit. So trade has gotten, um, gotten so much attention, but really hasn't changed that much. Fairly modest things happening on the trade front. Kind of pretty much business as usual phenomenon. 
If you want to know where the really interesting new things are happening in the relationship, there you have to look at the other side of the coin and look at investment dynamics. Investment gets um, uh, doesn't get the credit, but it's doing most of the work in terms of adjustment. Uh, some of the lines on these two charts, and the one on the left is U.S. direct investment, FDI, into China and China into America since 1990. That is the new story we have for you tonight is to introduce 2018 full-year data. You're going to get the details in just a second. And you can see that this chart uh, on the left is uh, basically Exhibit A in how much reduction, disengagement, damage to two-way flow and activity can happen in just a year's time when the fundamentals that have held the relationship together change. So that red line that takes an absolute nosedive uh, last year is Chinese FDI into the US. You're gonna hear a lot more about that in a second. The chart on the right is part of what we're doing new as of this year. And that is a picture of a new channel in the two-way relationship, and that's venture capital flows between our two economies, which until recently were so modest that they didn't really deserve the same center stage attention that the direct investment picture has gotten, um, relatively speaking. But today actually is a show of how much resilience there still can be. There's some pretty extraordinary things that you're gonna hear about the 2018 venture capital story um, from Tilo in just a second. So it's really a tale of two trends, if you will. On the one hand, a tremendous punch down of activity and the channel that is the one that we regulate heavily, direct investment, where CFIUS um, uh, has traditionally um, uh, taken a screen to inflows into the US, and China, of course, has traditionally been um, very interventionist in terms of what foreign firms are allowed to do in China as well. And the other trend, one of almost boundless potential to grow, the amount of interaction and two-way investment um, between our economies. Just to transition here to Tilo, I'll say that which of those two tendencies, those two potential stories, will be the dominant one for tomorrow and the years ahead is not foreordained. It is for us to determine what sort of relationship, what sort of world we're going to live in, one in which we get past these impediments to engagement and find a reasonable basis to benefit from one another's strengths and weaknesses or one in which we decide that the risks associated with that are just too great, and we're better off looking to disengage and move our economies apart from one another. Um, regardless of which you think we should be doing, the debate that we need to have about that will be a better one if we make it in the presence of objective, reasonable, factual information about what's actually been happening to date. That's where we come in. That's where Tilo Hanneman in particular comes in. And with that, Tilo, let me turn it to you to take us through some of the details. Thank you. So, uh, oh, yeah. um, thank you, Dan, for um, setting the scene. Uh, I'm glad to be here, and I'm very uh, grateful to all the people uh, Steve and Dan already mentioned. And I'm super grateful to the IT guy who just saved my day. Uh, because that would have been really hard to uh, do what I'm about to do without any slight work. Um, 
as in the previous three years, the objective of uh, the US-China uh, investment uh, project is to create objective and transparent uh, data on US-China capital flows. And uh, I'm gonna spend uh, the next 10 to 15 minutes to walk you through the highlights of uh, this year's report. Uh, and uh, as Dan already mentioned, this year is a special year because we, for the first time, really comprehensively um, expanded our scope from just FDI to also include um, certain types of what's called portfolio investment flows, uh, namely venture capital. I want to start with um, FDI, direct investment, which has been the most visible type of US-China uh, capital flows for the last 20, 30 years, arguably. Um, just as a refresher, FDI uh, <laughs> is a type of capital flow that entails long-term uh, interest and significant ownership control. Uh, traditionally, FDI comes in two forms, greenfield projects, so companies building factories, offices, um, export facilities, uh, and mergers and acquisitions. So a company A buying uh, at least 10% stake in a company B that's in the other country. Those are the two major modes. Um, and I'm gonna start with the uh, US, uh, with the China to US story here because the, that's the most important uh, uh, change that we saw throughout 2018. Um, this is a picture um, of Chinese FDI transactions into the United States uh, since 1990, uh, and obviously a very dramatic uh, change over the last uh, five years. Uh, almost no FDI up until uh, the late 2000s, then a fairly uh, big increase up until 2014-15. Then we had two outsized years, 2016 and 17, uh, and then last year, you can barely see uh, the bar down here. So we, we went from 46 billion in 2016 down to 30 billion in 2017. And last year we went all the way down to only $5 billion of the Chinese FDI uh, in the US. Um, very important to emphasize here that it's not just a temporary correction. Uh, so kind of getting us back after two irrational years, which is uh, the official story that is uh, um, communicated by Chinese officials and by some other uh, researchers, we're really uh, falling way below that historical trend line. Uh, and in fact, last year was the lowest level since 2011. So a really, really sharp drop uh, and deviation from that historical uh, upward trend line. Uh, the main reasons for that uh, correction uh, is persistent Chinese capital controls. Since late 2016, uh, Beijing has uh, tightened its administrative controls around outbound capital flows. Um, last year, what added to the pressure is uh, that Beijing engineered a uh, tightening of liquidity in the Chinese financial market. So a lot of companies did not have the funds anymore uh, to make big overseas acquisitions. Uh, and then also increasingly on the U.S. side, uh, we're seeing a uh, tougher enforcement of existing CFIUS uh, laws. So a lot more investment screening, uh, including going back to already closed transactions uh, and asking companies to divest uh, again. Uh, and then finally, what Dan already alluded to, there's just this overall uncertainty hanging over uh, investors uh, about the broader US-China political and economic relationship that if you're about to make a big investment, you will probably sit on the sidelines for the next couple of months or weeks and see how all of this is playing out. Um, in addition to uh, Chinese companies investing less. Uh, we have also last year for the first time really in history seen 
uh, very uh, significant divestitures of assets by Chinese companies. Um, so in 2018 alone, we count about $13 billion of U.S. assets that Chinese companies um, have sold off uh, from their existing U.S. portfolio. So if you um, account for these divestitures, we only traditionally count gross uh, investment at, at historical value. But if you were to account for these divestitures, uh, last year Chinese FDI into the U.S. would have been negative seven to eight billion dollars. So again, just recapping, we went from all the, all the way from 46 billion dollars in 2016 to negative seven eight uh, in 2018. A really dramatic uh, shift in. Chinese FDI in the U.S. Um, this is a, uh, a heat map uh, of Chinese FDI in the U.S. by industry, and you can see some of those political uh, and policy impacts uh, clearly playing out. So first of all, uh, you see all the fields uh, going from at least a little bit red to from flashing red into almost white uh, in that last column, the 2018 column, which means uh, all of them are shrinking. Um, very clearly see that the areas that the Chinese authorities are focusing on, real estate and hospitality, for example, um, or entertainment, um, are taking a really big hit because companies cannot get the capital out anymore. Uh, on the US side, what I would point out is sectors like um, ICT, uh, down here the fourth from the bottom, um, has seen a really big drop from about three billion in previous years to almost nothing uh, last year, which is also related to those broader uh, US-China technology frictions. Um, and then the other area I would point out is the last one here, transport and infrastructure. We've also gone from uh, multi-billion dollar years to almost nothing in 2018. So you can clearly see how some of these changes in policy and in regulatory behavior are uh, fundamentally changing uh, Chinese capital flows uh, to the United States. Moving over uh, to the other direction within the direct investment cone, this shows uh, American FDI uh, into China since the 1990s. Um, that has traditionally been a more stable story. And for the last seven, eight years, we're about 13 to 15 billion every year. Um, most of it in a form of greenfield, not acquisitions. Uh, and um, it may at first look like a, a good story, actually. Uh, and that's also uh, the story that Beijing is telling. Everything's stable, everything's good. Uh, companies continue to invest. But if you put that in relation with Chinese GDP growth and big efforts to promote additional FDI over the last couple of years, um, this is actually a pretty negative story in our view. Uh, that line should have gone up tremendously given the growth potential that the Chinese economy still has. So we're pretty disappointed in that performance uh, and the uh, policy liberalization uh, that Beijing has engineered over the last year and a half has come too late to change any of the numbers in a meaningful way, at least for 2018. Um, looking at the industry uh, composition as well here, um, again, things have been a lot more stable than on the China to the US side. Um, a couple things I want to point out. Uh, first, uh, on the still growing side, you see sectors like uh, entertainment, uh, media, um, automotive has been pretty stable. and. Uh, Really interestingly, real estate um, has gotten a big boost by falling prices in China last year. So quite a few U.S. investors are looking at distressed commercial real estate in China again. Um, on the downside, and again, has also to do with uh, the changing policy environment, uh, one of the things that I would point out is uh, ICT again. This whole discussion about 
the U.S. government wanting to control uh, U.S. outbound investment and potential uh, technology transfer through joint ventures in China um, has, in our view, impacted uh, the uh, readiness of U.S. multinationals to take risk in certain areas. And that includes the ICT space, where firms have been building out semiconductor uh, plants and advanced ICT uh, R&D facilities. And that has really slowed down pretty dramatically over the last 18 months. So we're seeing first signs of that spilling over into uh, uh, the US FDI to China picture. Um, one caveat when you look at this chart is that we're seeing quite a bit of momentum in terms of newly announced investment. Um, what we're counting here is only completed investment. So we're not looking at billion dollar deals that have been announced but not um, actually consummated yet. Um, there is quite a bit of optimism and momentum in a few sectors that have recently been uh, liberalized or in which Beijing has taken off some of the equity caps on foreign investment. Um, automotive is one of them, financial services uh, and uh, chemicals and basic materials. So we, we're seeing big investments, including uh, Tesla's signature project in Shanghai. Uh, and so that is giving the numbers a little bit of a boost for 2019. Uh, and I think that's important to keep in mind when you look at the 2018 figures. Now moving over to uh, the second type of uh, capital flows uh, that we looked at in the report. Um, the, the bigger theme here is that um, portfolio investments, so shorter term, uh, non-controlling stakes that are more financially motivated are playing an increasingly important role in US-China capital flows. Um, mostly related to liberalization on the Chinese side, a more mature Chinese financial industry that now has private equity firms and other players that are engaging in that kind of investment. Uh, and within that universe of portfolio investment, uh, one type of investment has gotten a lot of attention uh, in Washington and other uh, um, quarters uh, is venture capital. Uh, venture capital is a subset of private equity. Uh, it entails uh, startup financing, uh, so investors providing capital to early stage uh, growth companies. By definition, most of those companies are high tech firms developing cutting edge technology. Uh, and it has gotten a lot of interest uh, in the broader context of uh, US-China technology frictions. Uh, and it was in fact a major driver behind uh, uh, the US updating its investment review regime last year. So it's gotten a lot of attention, but we still believe um, a lot of uh, folks in Washington and elsewhere don't properly understand what venture capital means and um, how big those flows are, and especially uh, important, they don't understand the two-way picture yet. So we thought for this year, we're going to um, put a focus on uh, venture capital, and we're going to gradually build, build out this non-FDI branch of uh, the US-China investment project. So looking at um, venture capital, this uh, first chart here is a snapshot of uh, Chinese venture investment in the United States. And you can see why it has gotten the attention of uh, folks uh, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. Uh, there was almost no activity uh, all the way up until 2012, 2013. And then all, all of a sudden in 2014, we see a rapid rise uh, of both the numbers of investments so funding rounds for startups that uh, Chinese investors were participating in, as well as the total value um, of investment. Very important here, um, some reports that have been out there uh, in the public um, space and 
um, in government circles, um, they um, are looking at total funding round value and then count the entire value of one funding round as Chinese investment. What we do here is we take a different approach. So if there's, a, for example, a funding round uh, that entails five investors, um, we estimate, we try to estimate the Chinese value out of this uh, funding round. So it's a pro rata value um, of uh, venture funding that only uh, captures the Chinese share of that specific round, which is a very important uh, distinction to make because otherwise you would vastly overstate the magnitude of Chinese capital going into this field. Um, quickly looking at 2018, um, things have plateaued a little bit uh, since 2016, but in 2018, we've actually reached a new record high of Chinese VC funding in the US, despite Firma. Um, one of the main reasons behind that uh, record high is that Chinese investors are moving from earlier stage investments to later stage investments. And those investments tend to be bigger because the companies are more mature, valuations are higher. Uh, and so if a Chinese investor participates in a funding round for uh, Uber, for example, they'll have to put more money on the table than if they invest in a, a two-man shop somewhere in uh, Mountain View. So that's one of the major drivers behind that uh, uptick in the total value of investments uh, last year. Um, this is a uh, snapshot of uh, Chinese VC in the US uh, by sector. Uh, as you can see, there was a fairly broad-based increase uh, uh, starting in 2012, 2013, uh, but then especially over the last three or four years, two um, sectors have been driving uh, that increase. The first one is biotech, by far the most important field uh, for venture investment, and the second one is financial uh, and uh, business services. Um, this is the same chart that you saw before uh, for venture capital fi uh, financing value. Um, if you so, this one here was number of number of deals, and this one here is value. Uh, if you look at it from a value perspective, that dominance of um, health, pharmaceuticals, and biotech is even more visible, accounting for almost half of total dollars being spent on technology uh, over the last couple of years. Now, as I said before, it's really important when you, uh, when you think about venture financing and other portfolio flows to uh, look at the two-way picture. Uh, and as with FDI, uh, we want to consider both sides. Uh, and that dimension has been very much missing from the discussion in the US over the last two years, we believe. So this is a snapshot of American VC investments into China. A couple things, uh, you can see that US investors started at a much earlier stage to invest in China. Um, even all the way back 2006, seven, we already were at almost 100 transactions per year um, from the US to China. So all the big US venture firms, Sequoia uh, and the likes, have been really early movers in China, funding the Chinese tech scene, and to a great extent, promoting the growth of a lot of these unicorns that you have today. Um, and the number of transactions and the funding value have gone up in, in tandem over the last couple of years, and especially rose very quickly since 2014, in line with a broader boom in technology valuations, uh, to, to, uh, to be fair. Uh, last year, we've gotten to a new all-time record of uh, $19 billion of US venture financing going into the Chinese market, uh, which uh, again was driven by a shift towards later stage investments. So uh, US investors were putting a lot of money into uh, big Chinese uh, unicorns that were almost at the sort of pre-IPO level, uh, including 
companies like Ant Financial, and that has really driven up that uh, that value here. Um, The numbers reflect a funding round value at historical um, uh, values, correct. It doesn't reflect the value at the exit, but it reflects the, invest the initial investment into the company at historical value, yes. Yeah. Um, that goes for all the figures we have here, correct. Um, yeah, so 2018 was a record. Um, very important to keep in mind when you kind of think back to the other chart that we saw, um, we're looking at about five times of U.S. venture capital in China uh, compared to Chinese venture capital in the U.S. So as we are cracking down on some of these flows, um, if China um, were to think, were to move in the same direction, um, a lot of uh, venture firms here in the U.S. would, uh, would be uh, experiencing a lot of uh, uh, pain. Um, and then really important also for the bigger picture um, if you um, look at FDI and VC in combination, uh, in 2018, we're actually looking at two-way venture capital surpassing two-way FDI really for the first time in history. So while FDI is tanking and is really impacted by, by these policy and political uh, tensions, two-way venture capital, which is largely unaffected by regulatory intervention so far, for the most part in 2018, is going to new record highs. So that tells you something about commercial appetite still being very, very strong for two-way investment, despite those uh, um, political tensions um, that we see play out in some areas. Really quick, uh, that's the composition of uh, US VC uh, into China by number. Um, compared to flows in the other direction, U.S. investors have taken a much broader portfolio um, um, in China, investing in, in a broader array of sectors. Uh, and um, just in general, uh, U.S. venture capitalists have been a much more important part of the Chinese innovation and venture capital ecosystem than Chinese investors here in the U.S. Uh, Chinese investors in the U.S. account for far below 5% of total venture funding rounds over the last 10 years. U.S. investors in China have participated in more than a third of all venture financing rounds in China. And I can't think of any big unicorn, Alibaba, Baidu, what have you, um, that hasn't gotten U.S. venture financing at the start. So thinking about the uh, importance of foreign investment, that's a really important takeaway from, from our analysis that China really depended and still depends on U.S. venture financing both in terms of actual money being put on the table, but also all the other benefits that come with it, mentoring, validation uh, for other investors. Um, so that's been a really important uh, 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 finding of, of the analysis that we've done. Um, this shows the same uh, as we just saw, but in value terms, um, you can see that this pretty much uh, follows some of the large uh, unicorn funding rounds that have happened uh, in China last year. Uh, so you look at um, uh, consumer products and services, uh, that was uh, Pinduoduo, uh, uh, entertainment, media education, uh, that was ByteDance and others, uh, and then of course financial and business services, those are companies like Ant Financial that have raised a lot of capital um, moving towards the IPO. So that's really pushing up uh, and dominating those uh, value tables. That was a lot of information to take in um, as a good starting point for our discussion, hopefully. 
uh, and there are a lot more uh, details in the actual report, which you can download uh, on this website. Uh, we also are in the process of constantly updating um, our online visualization, so you can um, uh, open up that uh, website. You can customize uh, data points. You can look at industry profiles, and a lot more is on that new uschinainvestment.org website. Uh, so hopefully, we'll take a chance to explore. I'm going to pass it back to Dan for just uh, another couple minutes to wrap it up and provide a forward-looking perspective on the remainder of 2019. But thanks for your attention. Awesome. Thank you, um, Hilo. Great job. Um, there is actually a lot more in the... Uh, we're not done yet. <laughs> uh, we'll get two, a couple more slides. Um, uh, there's actually quite a bit more in the report than Tilo just covered. Um, he mostly uh, just worked through the core data numbers in the report. There is a considerable amount of exposition or interpretation of, uh, to help understand the data um, and discussion of some of the policy dynamics at work that are starting to have an effect um, on the data um, that you'll find there too. Um, but it's pretty closely attached to the numbers. We've always taken the stance with this report that um, this is about putting an objective set of numbers on the table that folks uh, on all sides of the discussion and the debate in China, the United States, elsewhere, hawks, uh, engagers, can all refer to the same underlying numbers to have a, a better discussion, even though they want to take it in different um, directions. And the report, report continues to do that. We're pretty careful not to get too normative about the way things should be or what we think um, should be uh, where, uh, where we go from here uh, in terms of these flows. That said, um, we do have some conclusions in the report. I'm not going to read off everything on this slide, um, but I'll just, um, for the sake of stoking the embers here, Steve um, and Catherine Constance for our conversation, Go ahead and flag a few things that are, that are worth some discussion. Um, if it didn't already wasn't already obvious to you, um, the FDI, the, the investment story from 2018, showed in no uncertain terms and just so concretely hmm. that things that seemed like they were inexorable trends could be completely changed in a very short period of time, that nothing is disengageable. There have been some people are arguing, including in many of the circles that um, we all up here um, uh, work in in, in policy uh, dialogues, that we shouldn't take the road of disengagement. Well, disengagement is already a reality. <laughs> it's already happening in important um, categories um, of our economic interaction. And it's not so much yet in the trade side. But as I said at the beginning, on the investment side, we've already had some very um, serious um, uh, uh, disconnections happen. Um, secondly, that the shift that we've seen so far doesn't even reflect yet the impact of these new regulations that were passed last year. Um, Kilo <laughs> mentioned FIRMA, the Foreign Investment Reform Review Modernization Act. I always get some part of that mixed up. Um, but FIRMA, anyway, that's what you need to remember. That was passed over the summer. We had implementing draft and a pilot implementing rules um, come out late in the year. Didn't really change the 2018 numbers at all. And in fact, as Tilo said, 
um, is a record year for VC activity, which is mostly what these new regs are all about, right? So there are shoes that haven't fallen yet, that we're gonna see what kind of effect they have on patterns here in 2019. I would note, in, in, uh, with regard to that though, that we shouldn't reactively assume that these kinds of regulations, stepped up screening, for example, should be interpreted just as bad news for engagement. It used to be a decade ago, we could kind of take it for granted that deeper China-US engagement was definitely in our national interest. China could take it for granted that deeper engagement with the United States was just obviously in its own interest. It's more complicated now. Um, we've kind of grown up a little bit. China's certainly grown up. It's a big, powerful country with global interests. And not all of our interests are going to be exactly coincident. In some ways, we are competing. In some ways, we are contesting one another's systems. And this is true. And I haven't found a Chinese friend yet who's willing to say, no, 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 we're going to be just like you when we grow up. That's not how China feels about the world. We never should have expected it to be exactly so. But in any case, that means there's going to be some conflict. New rule sets, whether it's new CFIUS rules or something else, are actually the best hope to be clear with due process what the rules are, what the law is. And it's meant to define those cases which we're not comfortable with. It oughtn't be to say we're going to just take everything off the table. So actually, regulation can be your friend. It shouldn't be seen as the enemy. Um, when we first started doing this work over 10 years ago, Tilo and I now, in those days, we were still hear hearing a lot of complaints about CFIUS from large investors in China. Uh, we hate the CFIUS process. This is bad news. You're trying to keep us out. And in those days, we were saying, for God's sake, just try to lock in how open the door is in America right now. You could never hope to have it that liberal with a peer competitor in the world. And if you don't really take steps to try to preserve this very permissive environment, it's not going to last forever. There's mm. going to be an allergic reaction in some ways in the U.S. Lo and behold, we have that now, right? Um, in any case, that was a long digression. The point I wanted to make was that um, there's more to come in terms of the impact of regulation on the trends that you saw in 2018. Thirdly, that the tensions that we're seeing and the transparency, the statements of concern about investment implications actually can be the source of um, impetus to create investment opening, especially on the Chinese side. Part of how China is reacting to current conditions is by um, uh, listing new areas of its economy that it's opening up to more uh, normal foreign participation, getting rid of joint venture requirements, for example, um, which are still, which are now completely, I think, antiquated uh, in the context of a $13 trillion um, economy that still has training wheels on it uh, in many ways. Um, fourthly, that, and I've already alluded to this, deal or no deal, no matter what happens this week, next week, or next year, the national security realities are here to stay. This is just the nature of existence between two very big countries with very different ideas about the role of um, the state, the, uh, the, the, the proper um, degree of civil liberty uh, among people and these sorts of things. So we need to get used to that and get accustomed to it and manage it, have leaders decide how to do, do, uh, do the, the necessary national security work 
with minimal impact on our economic opportunities, not maximum impact um, on the commercial um, sector. And then finally, um, to finish up our initial remarks here, um, we will point out that while this is a US-China report and a US-China story, it already has tremendous implications for other countries as well. Some of the new controls being put in place to manage our anxieties about China are intentionally or unintentionally um, going to block out investment into Silicon Valley, where Hilo lives, from French or Israeli or Canadian companies as well. Um, this dragnet is going to have effects way beyond just, uh, say, state-owned companies um, in high-tech sectors um, from China. So we're in an inherently multilateral flow of capital here. Um, global venture capital is not really American or Chinese these days. Um, it's something uh, much different than that. And yet we're still wrestling with these things using uh, nation-based policy tools. And that's ultimately not going to work, um, even if it's a necessary element in the, in the short term. So thank you very much. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm excited to turn to the oh last slide, um, which is only to say that um, for if you're kind of thinking ahead about what happens next, um, there are many elements of the story here in the process. Uh, regulatory change is still to come in June. China is expected to put its new uh, negative list, um, which describes which industries are open and close to foreign investment on the table. Uh, January 1st, we'll get the implementing regulations from Beijing on the new foreign investment law, which could surprise us on the upside and be very progressive. Meanwhile, here in the States, um, over the next two months, we're expected to have um, revised implementing regulations under some of these new U.S. rules on screening, describing which industries are going to be mostly of concern to Washington as it takes its fine-tooth comb through Chinese investment and tries to figure out what's problematic. Um, so we can start to look ahead and think about what the story is going to be over the course of the year. And again, uh, we look forward to being back not just next May, um, but back um, to our audience here to talk about how this plays through um, at least two more times this year um, with reports on other aspects um, of the topic. And so with that, I really can sit down, I think, and move to what is going to be a terrific panel. Thank you very much. Really fabulous data. I mean, it's why the National Committee works with Rodian is when you hear this data, you just understand this is, this is really the fact. Um, I guess the first question is, can we quantify, is it possible to quantify what percentage of the decline is attributable to capital controls and what percentage of the decline is attributable to tighter scrutiny from CFIUS and other regulatory uh, restrictions that have begun to emerge in China, that is the 2018 mm. decline? Maybe I'll give this a first. Um, um, one indication you have is to just look at global Chinese outbound investment and how that has fared. Uh, and um, if you look at these figures, there's different measures. There's a balance of payments measures. There's some Ministry of Commerce measures. Uh, you could look at global M&A. And all of these measures show a continuous drop in, um, in Chinese outbound investment throughout 2018. So uh, it's a global story, uh, and that is mostly driven by Chinese outbound capital controls and certainly talking to companies um, that really is being confirmed that that is the single most important driver and continues to be the single most important driver 
of, uh, of this decline in outbound investment. Um, teasing out the, the exact impact of policy um, is difficult um, because a lot of these flows are driven by uh, commercial uh, and sectoral trends. So you do see uh, different patterns uh, uh, in different OECD economies. You see a very steep drop um, in the US. Um, you have a um, slightly uh, more resilient situation in Europe, which is partially a result of uh, fairly modest European investment screening efforts. Uh, and you have a big increase of Chinese investment in Canada, for example. Um, but that, of course, is driven by renewed interest in, in basic materials and, and resources. So there's a lot of competing policy and, and, and economic uh, factors at play here. Um, and I would also say that this drop in the U.S. is so steep because a lot of the um, uh, sectors that are on Beijing's blacklist really correspond with the asset base in the U.S., right? The U.S. has really good assets in things like real estate or entertainment. So there's, there's also that correlation that uh, has driven the value further down in the U.S. than, for example, in Europe. Um, but by and large, I'd say uh, in 2017, it was 95% Chinese outbound regulations. Now we're down to maybe 75% Chinese outbound regulations, 25% overseas uh, regulatory intervention. Just if I had to put a number on it, that's what I would say. And you expect it to affect the venture capital investment too? In other words, why are the capital control, why are we continuing to see increase mm. in Chinese VC investment in the United States while these capital controls remain in effect? Um, we're, we're seeing uh, that resilience partially because a lot of these venture funds are organized through offshore structures and they already have their capital overseas. So they don't have to ask Beijing for approval to take the money out in the first place. They already have it in the Cayman Islands, in Hong Kong, elsewhere. They can raise capital from international investors, pension funds, and others. Are you considering that in your data? If it's, if it's, if it's global funding? So our data... By Chinese, it's then considered Chinese venture. Our data is based on... We look at limited partnerships, which is the traditional mode that these investments take, and we're counting uh, an investment as Chinese if the general partner that is managing the investments is a... Uh, a Chinese entity or Chinese individual, then that is considered, from our perspective, as as Chinese uh, investment, which is in line, broadly in line, with uh, the criteria that U.S. government is using. Formerly had as the CIO of of uh, Calpers, a Chinese national, would you consider Calpers then a Chinese? And obviously not. But point being, it's a it's a fairly fuzzy. Point being, it's an yeah, it's an incredibly difficult uh, uh, task to. Uh, Tease that out on the FDI side, and of course, if you're looking at globally mobile investors and globally mobile capital, it's really, really difficult. But we tried our best, and we've, we've got a clear definition. It's somewhere in the back of the report that you can all look up. And I think we're as close as possible to uh, the definition of governments when they look at uh, control uh, and ownership, uh, and that's what we followed. We don't know what the outcome of the trade negotiations are going to be tomorrow. But let's assume that they are unsuccessful and we see the imposition of these very high tariffs. What is going to be the, what will that make the numbers in 2019 for FDI? Um, both Americans in China and Chinese in, in America look like. I would, um, well, there's really, I think, maybe, maybe two things worth saying um, about that. Is it working? Okay. Um, I'll just speak loud just in case. But in any case, um, look, on the one hand, 
you know, if there is a truly toxic environment between two nations, then it doesn't really matter what the technical legal <laughs> terms say is permissible and what's not. It's generally going to be fairly difficult to, um, uh, to make investments. That said, I want to put two big footnotes on that, right? And that is that in a nation of nearly 1.4 billion people, there are many Chinese, many very high net wealth Chinese, that if they perceive that a kind of bifurcation is going to happen, they're going to be very interested in taking that last opportunity to establish a position in a marketplace that they feel very akin to, many of them. The uh, business culture, um, uh, some of the characteristics of how American opportunities are run are, I think, uh, in, in some ways more manageable to many Chinese private sector business people than the way conditions have been trending in China to some extent. So one can imagine that, that as Tilo said, there's still a very strong appetite from the Chinese side to deploy capital in, in the United States. And secondly, I would observe that classically from an international uh, economic policy perspective, in the, against the threat of higher tariffs, there is a new motivation to do direct investments to be on the other side of the tariff wall. It was the threat of very high tariffs on Japanese steel and automobiles that created the boom of Japanese investment into the United States in the 1980s, such that there are today about 700,000 Americans getting their paychecks in America from Japanese invested companies here. And that had something to do with being on the right side of a, of a higher tariff wall. So the tariff wall per se isn't the killer to the potential for two-way investment flows. It's the toxicity that's behind it, I think, that is most concerning there. Kilo, anything on that one? Constance? Not sure that's working. Is it, can we get it working? Yeah. Working? No, not working, working. Okay. <laughs> can people in the back hear? You guys can hear? Okay. Okay, a little louder. All right. Um, so, I, you know, in thinking this situation through, if, if we were to play out um, increased uh, tensions, and, and let's face it, some of the core of that tension really is because the U.S. has fully met its match if we're going to have a bipolar world, right, a, a dual hegemon world. When it was a dual hegemon world with the U.S. and Russia, there was really no match there, even though it was perceived as being a match, right? There was a military match, but there wasn't a match on other things. There wasn't a match on innovation. There wasn't a match on economy size. There wasn't a match on so many different levels, right? And so here we have a situation where we might have an escalation of, of tensions, and yet there is, and a, and a true bipolar world, and, and there's all this cross-border investment already in place, right? And so if we think about any other situation, and, I, and maybe someone in the audience can think of a time in recent history where this was the case, but I can't think of a time where we have this much capital, you know, built up over the decades across borders, and we have an increase in tension. So it's a very unusual situation for which I don't think we have a template. Um, the 
the fallback position would be, well, those business interests are going to come to bear, especially, I think, in the U.S., through the political process to try to temper some of this. But, um, you know, that so far has, you know, the business roundtable seems to have had very little impact on this administration and how it's handling the situation. So uh, I guess that was a long way to say um, we're in kind of uncharted territory where it would seem there are a lot of interests uh, really aligned to having things, to tensions decelerate, but that the political bodies uh, are really in uh, acting adversely to that commercial interest. Doesn't the tariff, <clears throat> Dan, doesn't the tariff wall get jumped easier if you relocate to Vietnam or Cambodia or Syria, especially if you're a supplier to Costco and you know you're manufacturing stuff in China. Isn't it easier to you're not going to bring it back to the United States where your labor costs are just too high. You're going to put it in Vietnam or Cambodia or somewhere in Africa. I mean it depends on the industry. Well, you know, industry it, yeah. I mean there there's a there, there's some there oh, this has already been happening for a decade of course and that's not a trade policy shock that's a structural reality of China as it's become wealthier and um, uh, more advanced as an economy per capita incomes rising things that were competitive to do in China a decade ago which were competitive to do in Japan 40 years ago right move on um, to someplace where uh, environmental controls can, can be laxer than they can be today now, or labor rates are going to be lower or whatnot, right? So some, some industries, uh, light manufactured stuff, um, will move along those lines. And you're right, uh, not everything is going to reshore to the United States. Most things won't. Um, on the other hand, um, more and more of what you know is a big value items in our trade accounts with one another um, are higher value tech. Uh, and whatnot, um, and services, um, which uh, which are different. I'm not going to go to Vietnam uh, overnight, that sort of stuff. So very impossible, I would say, to game it all out. And this report really doesn't, you know, offer any new grappling hooks to do a better sort of global trade investment macro model <laughs> of how stuff's going to move around. We can only acknowledge together that yes, um, all these permuta permutations are possible. Catherine, you're lawyering these cross-border capital flows. What do you tell your Chinese clients in, a, in an environment like this? <laughs> brace, brace. A lot of Chinese clients are very concerned. Um, you raised a really interesting question uh, a minute ago. Uh, that was the same question the U.S. trade representative asked the, uh, the industries and a lot of domestic U.S. companies in those tariff hearings. Why don't you just have it manufactured in China or outsourced in Vietnam or other Southeastern countries? Uh, the answer I heard from the industry and from the companies was universally. So that's the reality of the global supply chain. And it takes anywhere from 12 months or forever to <laughs> relocate and restructure it. And so the Chinese clients, uh, they are commercially driven, and they're very interested in a lot of the U.S. assets, which is fully demonstrated in this excellent report about VC uh, investment trend. Uh, they're asking about CFIUS and Firma. Uh, 
Um, that's the number one question they ask mm. these days. They're asking about export control as well. Um, and uh, a lot of them are worried that the United States is using a bilateral tool to resolve a multilateral trade issue. And do they just not start down the road? Or do you, or they go far enough down the road that you apply precipitous uh, approval and you don't get it? Or is basically investment being shut off <coughs> very early on, or is it actually going down to hmm. where you're getting these rejections? So it depends on the industry and the sectors. So, for example, uh, if they are in certain industries nowadays, whether it's closely related to data collection and analysis, infrastructure, um, certain advanced manufacturing, biotech R&D, any one of them that's in those 27 categories of uh, highly sensitive emerging technology under the FIRMA regulation, uh, a lot of these deals are deterred very early on. Mm. Um, it also, so it depends on the sector. It also depends on the size of the investment and the nature of the investment. So I want to add some color to what Hilo and Jen said earlier about VC investments. I think when they said VC, it's the VC defined in the broadest of term possible. And correct me if, if, if it's wrong. I think the VC doesn't just cover what many of us in the deal-making space think of the typical professional VC funds making VC stage investments. It's actually VC, private equity, mm. angel investments, portfolio investments, minority investments combined. And investors are not just the VC funds. Those include um, strategic investment by large corporations or the investment arms of companies. Um, and then that is a very broad definition. And those deals tend to be, at least in 2018 and 2019 so far, they haven't been truly impacted by FIRMA. But the, uh, the background of the FIRMA, the regulatory background of the FIRMA, is actually to target to VC deals because hmm. it applies to deals uh, where the investors invest in 10%, less than 10% which was traditionally not captured by CPS. Um, and now uh, that's, that's going to be captured by FIRMA. Do they go elsewhere or do they just go home? In other words, when, when, when it's, it's somebody looks or when a, a business, you're looking at the United States and you say, okay, I'm not going to get regulatory approval. Do you see evidence that they go to the EU, Japan, South Korea? Or do they just say, okay, I'm just going to have to stay home and not invest outside of, of China? Well, they go to the other Silicon Valleys. There are no so other right. Silicon Valleys, indeed, right? So, I mean, in some cases... <laughs> I mean it more broadly than that. Well, I mean all FDI, including the Um so, so, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but not entirely, actually, right? I mean, there are some things that are substitutable elsewhere, and there are some things that are not, right? From Even from our really early work, um, we've pointed out, uh, not least to folks in U.S. government who were saying, well, why would these Chinese companies want to be here if not to do something nefarious? I mean, there are some people who actually think that way. Steve, I know, I know you've encountered it as well. And 
one of our earliest, you know, insights was to say uh, to serve their American customers, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, after all, if you um, you know already have uh, you know five hundred billion dollars a year, if you listen to our dear leader pointed out every day of sales here, then presumably you've got to have some operations here to support that that customer base, right? Um, so you obviously can't. So if there's direct investment happening here to have service centers, fulfillment centers, uh, all that good stuff, advertising to back up your selling, your presence in the American market, then you can't move that someplace else, right? Um, and then there are those cases, which are more BC that I was joking about before, where there's just no deeper, you know, there's no place where there's as much depth as there is in biotechnology as Route 128 up in Boston, mm -hmm. or um, AI is in Silicon Valley. Although there are some exceptions to that. Kilo? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing a little bit of diversion over the last year, year and a half, uh, in certain areas where um, other geographic locations are competitive, especially in the M&A space. Um, not so much on the VC side, but um, you know, thinking about biotech, um, a lot of that now is, is being you know, diverted uh, to Europe, I would say. Um, some of the more sensitive technology stuff, semiconductors, uh, um, potentially sensitive uh, ICT, including surveillance and, and that kind of stuff, is going to Israel, for example. So there is a bit of diversion happening. Having said that, all of these other nations are in the process of tightening their investment string as well. So they've woken up and said, well, you know, we should maybe take a look at that as well. And um, I can't really think of many countries that are not grappling with that question now. And uh, so the, uh, there is more of a convergence of these regulatory approaches across the OECD now. So Constance, the U.S. economy is doing great. I mean, you know, growth is 3.2%. Unemployment is at you know, five decades low. Is there a potential for these kinds of restrictions to affect macroeconomic growth in the United States, growth in the United States? So it's very, I still don't think this is working, not working, yeah, okay. So it's very indirect. The, um, the impact is very indirect. Uh, and that is because we are a large closed economy right, in general. So, uh, and then of course our trade with China is a small percentage of our GDP. Um, and so not to say it won't have some adverse effect. We've already seen an increase in uh, producer prices from the first round of tariffs. And so increasing them by 150% is of course going to have uh, a greater adverse effect on producer prices. And then if they get broadened out to this wider scope um, that, that Trump is threatening. So there's the 301 tariffs that go into effect according to the document that was released today by the USTR uh, on the um, 10th of, of May. And then there is the potential for additional tariffs. Um, and, and that is going to be more on consumer goods. The current set of 301 tariffs are mostly intermediate goods. So de minimis impact there. However, the impact comes through uh, financial markets. So of course, we've seen a sell-off in equities. Um, and equally important, if not more important, what we've seen is the volatility index has gone from about 14. Um, it got up above 20. I think it closed around 19 today. And when that VIX index rises, what it does is it increases the cost of capital for U.S. companies, right? So this is equity capital and fixed income. And so it increases that cost of financing, which 
has a slowing effect on the economy. And to me, that's the most important channel by which uh, higher tariffs and just trade tensions and uncertainty around trade in general. So this extends beyond just China, right? It extends to we have to ratify the USMCA. It extends to Trump is making uh, mumblings or the administration is making mumblings that they might um, put on broader auto tariffs, including on, on Europe. And so it's the entire uh, trade change relationship um, of which this is sort of the most prominent at the moment. For either Dan Keeler or Catherine, why does the US government care about a minority investment in a venture capital firm? Aren't there many other mechanisms that you could use to protect the technology if that's what they're worried about? I mean, I've had shareholders agreements in my career that don't allow the shareholder access to a lot of the, what's going on. I mean, why is this the approach that we're taking when the potential implications are asset devaluation in the United States? So uh, let me take a crack at it first. And I think uh, the Rodian report has an excellent section on the reason as well. So um, if you compare the uh, control and influence of the Chinese, the broader def defined VC investors in their invested companies in the US, if you compare that to a US VC investor's uh, control and influence over the Chinese target companies that invested in, you can see typically the Chinese VC investors have a higher level of uh, control, desire of control and influence over the companies they invested in. They want a board seat, they want um, certain veto rights on uh, big decisions, they also typically couple a VC investment with a commercial deal. So, okay, I will invest $10 million in your biotech startup, and in return, you will give 100% of your distribution rights of your technology uh, in Asia or in China to me, and nobody else will have it. This level of desire for a higher level of control and influence, um, under CFIUS, this was a loophole because CFIUS governs control transactions. And this type of VC investment traditionally was not captured by these uh, CFIUS. That's why FEMA focused on non-control hmm. investment. May, may I just, just add two more points? I think two other characteristics that are really important to keep in mind is number one, um, a lot of the, not professional VC firms, but a lot of the corporate VC investors were state-owned enterprises. Some of them directly tied to the military industrial complex in China, right? AVIC were some of the big manufacturing firms. They were very active in the U.S. for a period of time. Uh, and uh, to be fair, we've also seen patterns of collusion among Chinese firms to buy a number of uh, minority stakes that would eventually add up to a 20, 25% fairly big stake. We've seen these patterns, I've seen them, and I'm sure the US government has seen them. And so that was one of the drivers behind that push. And just expanding pharma doesn't mean that these investments would be blocked, but the US government wanted to be able to take a look at them if they, if they came across them. In the past, they simply were not by law allowed to look at some of these patterns, if they, even if they found them. So uh, I think pharma does exactly that. It closes a loophole, 
Uh, and it doesn't mean that all of that is going to get shut, shut down. Right. And the U.S. government is closing another loophole, which is export control. So the export control regulation doesn't just apply to the typical way you think of export, meaning goods and service crossing the border. So they're tightening the control by applying export control to uh, domestic technology transfer. Let's say your company hires a Chinese-American scientist researcher or engineer, and that person who is not a U.S. national has access to your fundamental technology, which is an export control technology. The DOJ has a new initiative called the China Initiative to close, up, close down that loophole. That's why nowadays you probably see a lot in the news that oh, this Chinese-American scientist from MD Anderson was forced out because of technology uh, leakage. And the GE engineer was arrested for IP theft. That loophole is being closed down as well. What do you mean that loophole is being closed? That's always been illegal to, to, to right. steal IP. In other words, it's not what, what we're seeing, what concerns me about these comments is we're seeing kind of prosecution or surveillance of people because they're Chinese-American, because they're Chinese, that what we're actually seeing is an overly broad um, attack on people who are Chinese in the United States, that laws have always existed. Now we're broadening laws. And if you look at restricting investment, now maybe it's because I spent 25 years on Wall Street, and if I were selling a company and the highest bidder were Chinese and there was a lower bidder that I had to take because the U.S. government wouldn't allow me to sell to the Chinese bidder. Well, you know who the losers of that were? The losers are pension funds in the United States who own most public companies. And nobody has taken into account the pension. There are lots of other existing laws that could have been used to protect our national security interests. And we should worry about this overly broad attack, don't you think? There's a really interesting dialogue between Francis Collins, the director of NIH, which is the primary uh, federal uh, agency that funds the biotech research in the country. He had a dialogue uh, on science. I think it's the latest issue of science with a group of Chinese-American scientists. There are certain levels of profiling, racial profiling going on. Um, but there are also uh, NIH in their grant rules, there are specific rules about if a scientist works, and that doesn't just apply to Chinese Americans, it apply to all the scientists. If you work for a US um, NIH funded program, in the grant rules you're supposed to disclose if you also have a shadow lab in Shanghai, and the shadow lab is sharing uh, certain uh, biotech uh, information with the US uh, scientists. There are disclosure rules, there are conflicts of interest in the code of conduct of those institutions. So it's a really interesting dialogue. And I think um, both profiling and some uh, unauthorized IP transfers exist, and then it's hard to uh, find a Alan. Steve, to, to, to come back to the, the, the point, though, that this started on, you know, it's, yes, the law is clear if an employee takes company property 
and misappropriates it. If an LP investor in your business does it, the law was not as clear as of whether that owner had the same kind of obligations um, and could be treated the same way, could be surveilled by the company. I mean, the company snoops on us as employees, right? They can look at our email and see what we're doing and whether we're sending out files. Board members do not get the same kind of scrutiny. And so this was, I think you need to understand, this was a loophole that was identified by national security screening authorities in the US and in Europe and elsewhere too, that needed some kind of remedy. So it wasn't, uh, this was not a sort of thoughtless um, expansion of authority. It was a considered response to what was identified to be a, a loophole. I, I appreciate the loophole. I also, when I hear discussions like this, I feel, you know, we could spend the whole time talking about the prosecutions of Chinese Americans, which have been unfounded. Yeah. It's turned, so, so it's they're, turned yeah. out that they've been unfounded. They're what definitely, we see is, 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 you know, it's deeply troubling. Somebody so, who spent their life, you know, kind of working on these issues that we see an overly broad profiling of Chinese and Chinese Americans. Yeah, likewise. And, and you know, equally as disturbing that that overly broad profiling of foreigners is being applied in China as well, with a number of, uh, of non-combatants, shall we call them, being detained as hostages, essentially, um, without real recourse to any meaningful due process, which concerns us greatly as well. So I just think on this question, we, we must identify and understand that there is a legitimate case for thinking differently about the control relationship between the investor and technology, and at the same time, the overreach um, that is kind of racial profiling um, almost that is also taking place. Um, we mustn't address the second issue by treating the first one as though it were just a sort of, you know, reckless adventure by cowboys. It, it's not. We need to treat both of these with care. Fair enough. Just be alone, and then I want to yeah, open the floor to questions. Um, there's, there's no question that there's, uh, there's, there's in some ways a fairly broad approach to some of these things, but what really gives me confidence in, in the outcome is if you uh, look at processes like, uh, like the FIRMA legislation, it really shows you that the U.S. system of checks and balances still works uh, in a reasonable way, right? If you look at some of the earlier drafts of FIRMA, it was a very, very broad and aggressive um, law controlling uh, flows both ways, including a fairly broad authority to control outbound investments by U.S. companies. And um, if you now look at what we ended up with, um, it's a much more manageable and reasonable outcome. And I'm hoping that, that the same will happen with export controls and some of these existing uh, lists that have also been very broad initially, like the emerging technologies list that you were talking about. It's very broad. But there was a lot of opposition, a lot of input from different parties, and it's being revised at the moment. So that's the one big hope that U.S. democracy is still working and shaping these legislative outcomes. So hopefully we'll get to a reasonable outcome at the end of the year. Let me open the floor to questions. I know we got a great audience, so uh, let's see if we got some hands. Both hands. Ambassador um, Platt, and then the woman there in the middle. What are, what are the drivers of toxicity? Toxicity. Um, I find I spend most of my time on cultural exchange, and this is music and entertainment and, and things like that. And it is not effective right now. Maybe it will be. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm curious as to 
And I think toxicity can be compartmentalized. Um, but I'd like to get your views on that, because this is crucial to the issue of the relationship. That, that's that's your one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, I mean, I think, you know, none of us feel like it's a poor word choice, really. I mean, it's a very toxic um, uh, situation right now in the relationship. Uh, a lot can be said about what's driving it. We at Rhodium, we try as best as we can to stay in our lane, which is the economic part of the issue. It's much bigger than just economics. Of course, there's a security dimension political, cultural, lots of things. But in the economic lane, I would say that five years ago, I could stand up or sit down in front of Congress and say with, in good faith that I was confident that we were still convergent toward a, ultimately toward a shared set of norms for how to run our economies. It was gonna take longer than we like for China to get really where at the same place we are, but that pretty much Beijing intended to make its way to the same basically market-oriented approach to things. And that meant we just had to figure out what to do for the interim and, um, and what kind of temporary mechanisms we would need to deal with, um, uh, with the, the, the transition to where we wanted to get to. Over the past couple years, um, some folks on the Chinese side have said very clearly that that is not the case. We're not gonna converge with the way you do things. We're gonna have a much different role for the state in engineering the economy. We think that's gonna work better for us and we're not gonna put these things in the hands of the market. That has fundamentally put us off sides with each other in ways it has have, you know, the national security people never liked the way this was going, but the economics and business community were willing to say, you know, it's a big <laughs> world and not everybody's gonna see it the way that um, we do, and we're going to just have to deal with it. Um, but that's changed, too. The, the economics part of the story has also gotten sort of discordant on the past. It's a long conversation. We need a good bottle of wine, Ambassador. Right. <laughs> um, I'm Angela Joe from CB Star. Um, thanks for the great panel. So I used to live in D.C. before moving here. I think New York, generally speaking, is a more friendly city towards China than D.C. Because when you're in D.C., you go to different talks. One day you hear that people think China is a national security threat, and the other day they want to kill Huawei. But here you go to talks like this, people actually talk about collaboration and cooperation. <laughs> I think that's a message from the private sector. Um, you know, the private sector actually want to collaborate and cooperate. So my question is that, uh, what do you think the private sector uh, should do in the midst of the trade war uh, to re-emphasize the importance of China as a trade partner to the public sector? What initiatives have you seen that you think are gonna help with the relationship in the long run? Thank you. The ladies are from the private sector. Um, I can. I'm, well, this is working now. Oh, this is working now? Okay. Oh, who knows? All right, I'll just shout. Oh, okay, there we go. Um, yeah, so the private sector really has been fairly vocal on this, right? And pushing back and saying that it's not a good idea to escalate trade uh, tensions, right? And that this isn't the way to go about to achieve if uh, the security objectives, right? That there are other mechanisms. So uh, the, the problem with that is that heretofore it seems to have fallen on deaf ears. Yeah, and I think 
if the dialogue today is that the right tone, if the data-driven, facts-based um, discussion, which I think nowadays is refreshing, right? Um, and um, if you look at a lot of hard data, um, it's awakening. Um, take another biotech sector uh, example. In the United States, more than 50% of the biotech funding comes internationally. And the vast majority of that comes from China. So it's pretty fair to say uh, the single largest investor in US biotech programs and startups and uh, institutions are Chinese investors. Mm. So we may not feel the impact today, but the industry is already <coughs> feeling the impact. By the time you and I feel this impact, this is, a, I'm talking about cancer research, right? Stem cell research. By the time people like you and me feel this impact in our real life, it might be a life and death situation. So it affects everybody. And I think the private sector needs to lead the dialogue by talking about facts, talking about uh, data, and hopefully today is a good start. Right here in the front. Oh, I think you. Oh, you got the mic. Go ahead. Ask a quick one. Great, thank you. So um, I, I thought the uh, audience group put out very, very interesting uh, VC data. Now, you know, when I think about, uh, when I look at the capital flows from uh, uh, U.S. to China and then uh, China to U.S., I I'm more fascinated with U.S. to China, but to me it's no surprise. I think as, back, as far back as 2013, I noticed the Chinese uh, uh, ecosystem has been innovative. I'll get to the point first. Yeah. So with that said, um, <clears throat> China has been sort of being said they've been copycat for a long time, and then obviously the forced technology transfer has been a key issue. As China becomes more innovative, do you think that these VC capital will be more restrictive by the Chinese government because obviously they don't want the American potentially to tap into the Chinese uh, innovative system? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there will be uh, strategic areas that the Chinese government will be very restrictive to uh, U.S. VC investments in these uh, key emerging technology. Thank you. Interesting question. Yeah. Um, I have well, no thoughts on that. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. question. I think um, um, China, Beijing is certainly uh, looking at what the U.S. is doing, and in, in many ways has been trying to emulate some of these, these elements of, of a modern FDI regime. China also has its own. Citrus system, although it's really never been applied so far, because uh, other ways to, to uh, potentially interfere with transactions. On the VC side, I think uh, Beijing is very, very eager um, to uh, maintain the inflow of foreign venture capital. Not so much from the perspective of uh, money. Money is not the issue in China still. Um, but US uh, venture firms play a very important role in, in terms of validating um, investments uh, and um, helping Chinese tech ecosystems grow, um, none the least for uh, preparing for exits, right? As long as a lot of Chinese companies are still planning to uh, list on NASDAQ and, and U.S. capital markets, having a U.S. anchor investor on there or U.S. venture firms who validate the concept, the financials, the management is really, really critical for a lot of these companies. So I don't really see how uh, Beijing is... Uh, 
uh, really interested in keeping these investors out, especially since, as you mentioned, um, there is really a lot of ways for Beijing to make sure that uh, venture investors don't have access to core technology. I am sad to say we have run out of time, especially since I've recognized an additional questioner, but we are, we, it is now past seven o'clock. But I want to thank both uh, the panelists, you know, Constance and, and Catherine and uh, the Rhodium Group for really doing an amazing service to U.S.-China relations in, compel, in compiling this data. It really is, we need more data in discussing the relationship. And I, I thank you for your, I know this was a lot of late nights and I thank you for your work, but thank you all for coming. Good.